The following sermon was delivered by Pastor Frank Griffith in the Sunday morning service at Calvary Community Church in Brentwood, California. You'll find more information at calvarytruth.org. Wow, you just sang uh, three years of seminary in, that, in those songs. Amazing truth, isn't it? This is what God has done for us. He's given us his son. And uh, he gives us the privilege to give back to him in worship. I want to read this one verse from that reading you heard this morning in Zephaniah. This is always... There's a book written by uh, Sam Storms called uh, The Singing God, and it's based on this verse. The Lord your God is in your midst, a victorious warrior. Now, you have to understand, they were a people under siege, and so this was a word of comfort to them, that God was their protector. He was a victorious warrior, and it says, He will exult, which means he'll celebrate over you with joy. God will do that. He'll exult over you with joy. He will be quiet in his love. He will rejoice over you with shouts of joy. I think it's one of the hardest things in the world for believers to believe the testimony of Scripture, that God's love for us is immeasurable, because we keep having these feelings that he's kind of disgusted with us, kind of tired of seeing us fall on our face over and over and over again, and he must be continually upset with us. And yet the testimony of Scripture is, and the proof of it, of course, is Christ, is that the Father loves us. In fact, he says that was his motivation in sending the Son to restore us to fellowship with him. He reconciled us to the Father. And so all that you sang this morning is true. It uh, It is tempting, isn't it, to try to live the kind of life that would earn you a, an acceptance with God, and then you keep falling and falling and falling and failing. And uh, then you come to realize, no, it was the Son who provided away the propitiation. One of those songs said that he sits on the mercy seat. The mercy seat, as you remember, was the place where the law was placed in it, and it's where that the blood was spilled over and over again, two cherubim facing over it and It was a picture of the one place in all the universe where we could meet with God even though we are sinful. And in 1 John chapter 2, it calls Jesus our propitiation, which is this word mercy seat, hilasterion. That is, he is our propitiation. He is our mercy seat. And so when we want to talk to the Father, we go through the Son, In fact, the Bible is really clear that when I address God, I'm doing it through Christ. And it's as though Christ is speaking to the Father for me. Isn't that amazing? To get somebody who knows God very well and he becomes the one who makes your appeal. As you pray, you pray through Christ and the Father hears you. I want to talk about uh, this passage in... uh, I want us to look at this passage, the final passage in Philippians. This is a very intimate letter, as I hope you've seen, is Paul is writing to a a group of people that he was the one who brought the gospel to them. They came to faith in Christ. And so he's writing to them while he's in prison and giving them some, some instruction because of the information he had received about what they were going through. 
And he finishes a letter like this. Now remember in this letter, he, he's continually telling them, this is how you are to live so that you're living in a manner worthy of the gospel. We are a gospel team, a local church is, and we should live in such a way that if people come into our midst, they will have to ask, why do you live like that? And the only answer is Jesus. It's Jesus. And so this is how he closes his letter. I'm going to read from verse 15. I'm going to read from verse 14, actually. We covered that last week, but this is what Paul's doing at this point. The last thing in the letter, he's going to thank them for a gift that they had sent to him. Now, he's in prison. He's in prison. He's under house arrest, and they sent him an offering in order to meet his needs. And so he says to them, Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. Because remember, he had just said that he was content in whatever situation he was in, whether he had much or little, whether he was hungry or whether he was full. He learned to be content in Christ. And he says, but I'm really grateful that you sent a gift to me. Even though God takes care of my needs, it was a wonderful thing because it shows me something about you, that your hearts have been impacted by the gospel. He goes on to say, you yourselves also know Philippians that at the first preaching of the gospel, that is when he went through Philippi and took the gospel there, he said, after I had left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. Now, Paul was one of those guys who had gone out to take the gospel to the world without any resources. He just took off, and he started going west. Three long trips, and... uh, he would go and just trust the Lord to meet his needs. And so he says, you are the only church. This is a tiny little church. This is, remember the church that started at the, down by the riverside? There was just a few people. And this church kept on supporting him because of their love for him, because he had brought them the gospel. He says, for even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. And that's quite a, That's quite a statement because he was only in Thessalonica for a few weeks. And yet offerings came from Philippi to Thessalonica, or Thessalonica if you were a Greek today. Um, And they sent him a gift to meet his needs because they loved what he was doing. He was preaching the gospel. And he says, not that I seek the gift itself, because God, I'm satisfied in Christ. He meets my needs, but I, it's not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. In other words, I am, what I am grateful for is that the Father who meets my needs is going to bless you because you became one of the conduits through his, through which his provision came. Then he goes on, but I have received everything in full and have an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma. Now, they sent money through Epaphroditus and other resources, and he says it's a a fragrant aroma. To who? He says, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. This was like a sweet-smelling savor to to the God of the universe that you responded to his need because he was a an apostle of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then he says this, and my God will supply all your needs 
according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. He didn't say out of his riches, but according to his riches. God cannot give you something. God can't give you, when he gives you something, he doesn't diminish his riches. Did you know that? Because they're immeasurable. And so he says, my God will supply your needs, Philippians, according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Now to God and Father be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And then he writes these final words to them. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. Greet all the saints there in Philippi. The brethren who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. Now the implication of that is that Paul has been under house arrest and these guards have come and have been chained to him for for a few hours I think eight hours a shift. And guess what? Some of them came to faith in Christ. And so from the household of Caesar, that is this royal guard and their families, some of them have come to faith in Christ. I've thought about this before. What What if this was our, this was to be our method of evangelism? Be imprisoned and forced to be watched over by somebody who kept hearing us tell them about the glory of Christ. And he says, all the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. That's the heart of the apostle. He loves these people, and therefore he is so grateful that they sent him this gift, not because he needed the gift, because God met his needs, but because it meant that God was pleased with the evidence of their true salvation. Um. Giving is an evidence that the gospel has penetrated the heart. But here's the problem. Um, It's really urgent that we as Christians understand what God actually says about how we ought to give money to advance the gospel and to meet the needs of others because we're often bombarded with non-biblical approaches to motivate us to give. Some of you have heard the name Voltaire. Voltaire lived during, before and during the Reformation and actually after it. He was very critical of the Catholic Church, and then he became critical also of the whole Protestant movement. And he said this, Protestantism, that is those who, Luther and those that were taken out of the Catholic Church because they thought they had veered from the message of justification by faith alone, primarily. Voltaire said, Protestantism is merely a less expensive substitute for Catholicism. And, you know, he's not far wrong because we're catching up with him, you know. Instead of selling indulgences and pieces of the cross, we give away Jesus junk for a tax-deductible gift. You know, I could put together a Bible. Get this, I could, I could put together a Bible and include all my sermon outlines. Wouldn't that be valuable? <laughs> and, and then if you give $1,000 to the church, I'll give you my Bible. And so we have ways of misunderstanding God's plan to manifest the the fruit of the gospel in our lives through giving. In fact, the primary passage for this, if you want to look at gospel giving, that is giving in this under this covenant, the new covenant, is found in 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9. I'm not going to go there, but that's where you look. He gives you, it's actually 8 through 10, 2 Corinthians 8 through 10, those three chapters, tell us all about grace giving or new covenant giving or gospel giving. 
It's so different than it was under the Old Covenant. Under the Old Covenant, everybody was supposed to give 10% of their increase. Under the New Covenant, you can give whatever you want. And you say, well, I want to go to 2%. Well, okay, but you're free to give everything you have, just like the rich young ruler. I was reading a guy the other day, and he thought the rich young ruler was Mark, John Mark, because... uh, he thought he was exposing the fact that he himself in the initially did not understand the value of Christ until his eyes were opened by the Spirit. Pastors are constantly being bombarded by literature telling us how to increase the church budget, how to multiply giving units. You probably didn't know that's what you were given, you were called. You give money to the church and they, those who... Uh, out in there trying to sell you software to to increase the giving, they call you giving units. (laughs) What an insult, isn't it? A giving unit. No, we're a receiving unit. We, We constantly receive the blessings of God. But what does happen is God works in our heart and he gives us a desire to give. You should never give if you don't desire to give. And, and the deacons are going, you got to be crazy. What are you doing? That's right. You should not give if you don't want to give, because giving is ruined if you give it against your desire. Give because you desire to give. You see a person in need. You hear about a need of the gospel being spread somewhere. Give because you desire to. That's what 2 Corinthians 8 through 10 teaches, that the Spirit will produce a desire in your heart, and you will give. And you'll be blessed. It isn't the prosperity gospel. It's this. What God promises is if you desire to give, he will make it possible for you to give. He'll make it possible for you to give. And he does. And so instead of us trying to figure out how to get God's money out of stingy Christians' hands, uh, what we want to see happen is people come to be so delighted in who God is that they give because they desire to, and it's an evidence that the gospel is at work in their hearts. It's a wonderful thing. So what is the biblical approach? Well, what, what Paul does here, because he talks about the gift he had received from the Philippians, he gives us some principles, and you can see on the screen there, basically what he says is, gospel giving, you want to call it new covenant giving, that's fine, or, or grace giving, it's called all those things. Giving under the new covenant is first of all an expression of love. That's what he says in verses 14 through 16. It's an expression of love. He says, nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. Why was he being afflicted? What is this affliction all about? He was suffering for the gospel. And he said, you have done well to share with me in this affliction for the gospel. Emphasis is not on the gift, but on the fact that that giving was a gift of partnership with him in the affliction. They were joining him in the affliction by giving to support him. And he said, you share with me. Literally, you become partners with me in the affliction. Now, this affliction, of course, is talking about Paul. This is Paul's primary word for suffering difficulty for the gospel. You ever suffered for the gospel? You know, when you, if you've talked to people who have suffered for the gospel, it's, you're so surprised because... They take delight in it. God has 
has allowed me to suffer for the gospel. And this is what Paul keeps talking about, that it was a great privilege to suffer for the cause of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then he says in verses 15 and 16, you yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel, when I first came through Philippi and brought the gospel there, I left Macedonia, that was the entire area that they were in, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone, for even in Thessalonica you sent a gift more than once for my needs. I think that's so amazing. He didn't ask them for anything, but they were concerned about him, and so they responded by giving. The focus is their gift. It's an expression of their love and friendship. You've joined me as a partner in the sufferings of the gospel. In other words, the gospel had penetrated their hearts. It had actually left the effects of it in their hearts. And so their actions were demonstrating that the gospel had actually taken captive of their hearts. One of the songs we sang makes it very clear. I can't quote it now because I can't remember which song it was, but makes it very clear that Jesus came into the world not to win the Father's heart for us, not because God hated us and Jesus came into the world in order to get God to love us. He came into the world because God loved us and he sent his son to redeem us, and to reconcile us to himself. His motivation was his love for us. It's amazing to me that God loves us. And that whoever you are, whatever situation you're in, the God of the universe offers you deliverance and forgiveness and reconciliation simply by receiving Christ by faith. So Paul uses this language of friendship, that giving is what you do for friends, isn't it? I told you about the situation that with me. I had my email hacked and and this guy sent out emails. Maybe some of you got them about the fact I was stuck in the Philippines. I needed seventeen or eighteen hundred dollars, and one person actually sent him money. I was so impressed by this. I actually reimbursed him because I couldn't stand to feel the guilt. This guy is a eighty-five-year-old servant of the Lord over in New Mexico, so I reimbursed him. But I was so impressed that he would love me that much. And you know what he did with the money? He gave it away. <laughs> Isn't that something? That God has touched the hearts of people. Because of our love for Christ, we want to give to meet the needs of those who are following Christ and doing the work of Christ. And we want to give, we want to help people because of who Jesus is. I told you about that group, this missional group. They were a group of Christians who got together and and, uh, were always trying to invite non-Christians to come and join them and just have a meal with them, celebrate with them, come to know who Jesus Christ is by watching their lives and their interaction. And this one lady became a part of this group, and uh, her husband had abandoned her with three children. So she's living on her own, had a job, and she's raising these children. She's living in this house, and the house caught on fire and burned to the ground. So these Christians, and she had made no profession of faith. She just had been coming to their dinners and listening to them and so forth. And these Christians, what they did was they decided they were going to, what would Jesus have us do? So they got her a house. They rented her a house. And they got her furniture and clothing and, and basically gave her everything that she needed. 
She was overwhelmed, and she said, why are you doing this? And you know what their answer was? This is what Jesus has done for us. He's given us a life. He's restored everything that was broken in us. And so we want to do it for you. That's quite a demonstration of the gospel, isn't it? That's what he wants us to do, to demonstrate the gospel by our lives. And here, they're giving to the apostle Paul as he's in prison in Rome, is a demonstration that the gospel has penetrated their hearts. It was their friendship towards him, something eternal, this mutually belonging to Christ. I hate to break this to you, but we're going to spend eternity together. (laughs) Isn't that something? We're going to spend eternity together in the presence of Christ. Now, the good thing is we're all going to be changed We'll be like Jesus. We'll be a lot easier to get along with. And easier to love, because that's what he's called us to do. The second thing he says about giving under the new covenant, this new this gospel giving, is found in verse 17, and that is it's an investment of life. It's us giving ourselves. He says, not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. He was concerned. He was so grateful that they gave of themselves. The word grace means basically the way it's used in the New Testament. It's God giving himself freely to you. That's grace. That's why we're saved by grace through faith. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he has before ordained that we should walk in them. You see, it's by grace. God has given himself to us through his son. He gives Christ a people. You know who that people is? All of you believers. The father gave you to Jesus, and he says, go redeem them. And that's what Jesus did. He came and redeemed us. And then the Holy Spirit came and opened our eyes to the glory of Christ, and we believed, and we were brought into the family of God. And in the end, we're told, in the last day, Jesus is going to present us to the Father with singing. That's what he says in the end of Jude. He's going to exult in joy as he gives us to the Father. He's going to sing a song of joy as he presents us to the Father. How could he possibly love us like that? How is that even possible? He would give himself by giving his own son. And this is, this is the only explanation I know of that we give. It's because we've been given. God has given himself to us in the person of his son. And you can't beat God giving. You ever heard that song? You can't beat God giving. God has given himself to you. And so when I simply respond at the Spirit's bidding, and I respond in giving to the need of somebody because of who Christ is and what he's done, It's simply a response of love. And that's what giving is. It's an investment of your life. A lot of us think like that, don't we? That what I, my worth is, is my financial worth. It's how much money I make and what I possess. That's my worth. No, it's not. Let me tell you what your worth is. Your worth is what God paid for you. And what he paid for you was his own son. Jesus gave his life to purchase you. 
One of the primary words for the cross work of Christ is redemption, and it means that he paid the price to set you free from bondage and to be united with the Father. What a God this is. He's amazing. And this is why when the gospel actually gets a hold of your heart, you watch out, because he will open your heart and open your hands, and you'll be willing to invest your life and some, you know, giving is not just money, obviously. Giving in the kingdom of God is giving yourself. It's giving yourself. And the, the reason that money has, and this kind of thing has to do so much with this, is that's what we value the most. That's what we hold the tightest grip to. I read this thing the other day that the, the paradigm of the West, or the, the modern West, is uh, security. We're all worried about security whether somebody's going to steal everything we have. And it's true, isn't it? And, you know, right now, somebody may be stealing everything you have online. Does that make you feel good? But the fact is, we're safe in the arms of Jesus because God has given his son for us. And sometimes he strips us from things so that we can see what's truly valuable. The third thing he says is, this giving is an act of worship. Verses 18 through 20, he says, But I have received everything in full and have an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent. And then he describes the the monetary gift as this, a fragrant aroma and acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. Now that expression, a an aroma to God is what he, the way he described the sacrifices in the Old Testament when they were given out of faith. They're like a sweet-smelling aroma to God. And he says that's what giving is in the New Covenant. It's an act of worship. Remember when Jesus uh, was in the temple and he was with his disciples and they were watching everybody put money in and all the rich people, and some of them even had someone there to announce that they were giving. <laughs> As they walked by, and the rich people, they were blowing trumpets and all this, and, and then this widow came up, and she dropped in two mites. That's about one penny. And he says, Jesus says to his disciples, that woman, that widow, has given more than all the others put together, because this was her life. And she gave it as an act of worship of the living God. In Leviticus, it tells us, now when you reap the harvest of your land, and remember their land was given to them by God. So you had, you had your land because God had given it to you as a family. And he says, when you reap the harvest of your land, which God had given you, you shall not reap to the very corners of your field, nor shall you gather gleanings of your harvest. You know what he's getting at. You're to love your neighbor. This is what he told them under the law. You're not to take the whole crop. You're going to leave some there for those who need it. And they can come and get part of the crop for themselves. He says, you shall not oppress your neighbor, nor rob him. The wages of a hired man are not to remain with you all night long until morning. You see, uh, we have a little different economy here. We work, and then they don't pay us. Remember how it works? You, You work for two weeks, and they pay you for the first week. So you're always a week behind, or a month, or whatever. In this day, a man worked and he was paid for his wages that day. He worked all day long and then he was paid his wages so that he could go and buy food for his family. And so he says, 
When you hire someone to do a job for you, don't keep the money in your pocket overnight. Pay him right then. So we call them day laborers. They're paid for that, that day's wages. He says, you shall not hate your fellow countrymen in your heart. You may surely reprove your neighbor. You can tell him when he's wrong and when he's done wrong, but you can't hate him. There's a difference, isn't there? You can re- we can reprove each other. Jesus said, if, if your brother sins, rebuke him. And when he repents, forgive him. That's, what we're, that's the reason we rebuke one another is so that we can forgive. But get this, he's saying that my heart ought to be of such a nature that I want to give to those who are in need. Even to the point of not using up everything I have. One of the things that the New Testament teaches is that we should live a life with love following the example of Christ. He loved us and offered himself up as a sacrifice that's well-pleasing to God. And he says, what you should do is work with your hands so you have enough for yourself and enough to give to others. There were a group of guys, probably, I say there were guys, I don't think women would do this, but there were a group of believers at Thessalonica who refused to work. Now we assume, we don't know for sure why that was, but we assume it was because they heard so much about the second coming of Christ. Why should I work? Jesus is coming back tomorrow. It's called laziness. And so he told them, if they won't work, then don't let them eat. But you see, what he's getting at is, because of their lack of faith, withhold from them. But give to those who are hungry. Give to those who are in need. That's the pattern that we have. God's blessed us with more than we need. I would have you raise your hand. How many people here... Uh, need more than they have, I wouldn't want you to lie. So I'm not going to ask you that. (laughs) Because we have more than we need, don't we? We've got food in the refrigerator, in the cupboard. I don't even know where it's all at. I have to ask my wife. We have more than we need. When the gospel penetrates the heart and gets a hold of the heart, you want to give because you, you understand the gospel. The gospel is about the story about how God has given to you. He's given to you something that's so valuable you could never value it. Something you could never earn. Something you had to receive as a gift. That's the only way to receive the grace of God is by receiving it as a gift. And sometimes that's really hard for some people. To receive something as a gift. And God gave Jesus as a gift to us. And so he's reminding them of how God has blessed them and that when you offer it up, it's a sweet-smelling savor because it, it manifests your worship of the living God. This is why in the book of Hebrews it says, we offer up bloodless sacrifices. We don't offer up animals as sacrifices. We offer up bloodless sacrifices. And one of the things he mentions there is good deeds towards one another. That's a sacrifice. It's an act of worship to God. I remember one day when, uh, one weekend when um, Jeff Gleason came over to my house. He's not here, so I'm going to tell you this story. He, uh, he came over to my house, and he wanted to fix something, and I didn't know what it was. And it was one of the buildings we have, uh, kind of an, it's like a garage. And he saw that the, the part of it was sagging, and he wanted to fix it. And, and so he came over, and he worked all day long fixing that. And I got to tell you, it forever 
produced an attitude in my heart towards him. This was an act of love. It was an act of him giving, and it was a sweet-smelling savor to God. What an encouragement that was to see God at work in the heart of a believer. I got to tell you, that's the greatest encouragement in all of life is when you see evidence in a person's life that you have wanted to have impact, you wanted to see them grow in the gospel, and you begin to see evidence that they actually are living out the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's one of the most encouraging things in all the world. It's amazing. And so Paul, he is telling them that God is the one who gives things to you so that you can give out of worship and love for the living God and his people. In the midst of their poverty, he told them God will supply your material needs. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 9 in that section I told you about. God will meet your material needs so that you're able to give. When you're suffering opposition, back in chapter 1, when he talked about them suffering opposition for the gospel, he'll give you steadfastness and joy and encouragement. When you experience unbelief and disunity as a group, now we're never going to experience that, are we? Disunity. (laughs) When we experience that, what God gives us is, is he gives us steadfastness and joy and encouragement. When we experience unbelief, it gives us grace and humility. When we experience grumbling and anxiety, he gives us the reality that God is the God of peace. He's given us everything we need. Everything we need so that we could give. We could give ourselves to others. I'm not going to take an offering. That's not what I'm even getting at. I'm talking about us giving ourselves to others as a result of our joy in Christ. Because he's blessed us so richly. We had a birthday party last night for my grandson, Ryan. And uh, I shouldn't start talking about this. I, in the last year, I have had such joy in meeting with him. He's been meeting with me. He comes to my office once a week, and, and all we do is study the Bible. We just look through the Word of God. And my, my whole attitude towards him changed because I began to see God at work in his life. I began to see the, the life-changing power of the gospel penetrate his life and his actions. It's wonderful, isn't it? Now, Paul says, my God will act for me in your behalf. He'll fill you to the full for all your needs. That's what he told him. God's going to meet your needs just as he meets my needs. They were very generous to Paul. He says, but you can't outgive God because he gives according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Not out of his riches, but according to his riches. You know that's, that Old Testament passage that said he owns a cattle on a thousand hills? What he's doing is encouraging Israel to let them know, your God is not in poverty. He's, he is, he's not impoverished. And, and he gives to you according to his riches and glory. His riches and glory. That's the fear within the sphere in which God lavishes his riches on his own in Christ Jesus. 
if I had the guts, I would say, does anybody want to give a testimony of how richly God has given to you? I won't do that because I don't want to embarrass anybody, but isn't it amazing how richly he's given to you? He's given you life. He's given you the Holy Spirit. He's given you forgiveness of sins, given you a new nature. He's given you the Holy Spirit to live in you. And he's provided for you so incredibly well. He's a good God. And sometimes that goodness gets to you and you want to give to others. That's what gospel giving is. It's when the gospel gets hold of our heart and it motivates us to give to meet the needs of others. We see people, brothers and sisters in need, we want to give to them. We're going to sing a song in a second. I don't know if any of you know this song, He Giveth More Grace. It's an old hymn of the church. Uh, Annie Johnson Flint wrote this. And let me just read you a couple of lyrics. It says, His love has no limit. His grace has no measure. His power has no boundary known unto men. For out of his infinite riches in Jesus, he giveth and giveth and giveth again. Now, if you haven't read the King James lately, you might not know what giveth is, but it means he just keeps on giving it to you. This is a, this God gives good gifts. He's a good, good father. And he's blessed us so richly. Far beyond our ability to even measure. He's a wonderful, wonderful God. And uh, he gives according to his riches and glory. That, what a statement. My God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. All these missionaries that we relate to, they all have this attitude It's God who has to meet our needs. We're so grateful that he meets our needs through people, but we know it's God who must meet our needs. And he he gives because he's a gracious and good God. Our God and Father. Jesus said, Do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. Right after that, in 2 Corinthians, Paul says, Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. You ever receive something from somebody that they begrudgingly give it to you? They say, okay, all right, here it is. I'll give you this. God gives us out of his riches and glory, and he gives gladly. Now, the kingdom would be the most expansive gift there is, which is we are a part of. We've been transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son, and he's given this to us. You didn't earn it. You didn't accomplish something in order to get in this. It was a gift from the Father. And now you're in the kingdom of God's dear Son. And we await to see what this means until the future. And so Paul just reacts in worship when in verse 20 when he says, Now to our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. Amen. What can you do but praise him? For his glorious gift. And the ultimate example, of course, of his gifts is Jesus Christ. That's the gift that is beyond all others. So let's pray. And uh, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to give you an opportunity, if you would like to, just to we'll just take a moment here. I'm going to express my gratitude to the Lord. And then any of you who want to, please feel free to do that. But speak loud enough that we can hear you. Father, we we bless your holy name. Thank you for the riches in glory from which you give to us things that we can't even measure. We're so grateful. Thank you for giving us life.
and peace. Thank you for giving us community. Thank you for making us a family. We are so very grateful. To respond to this message or learn more, please visit calvarytruth.org.